This morning's reading of God's Word comes from the book of John, chapter 5, verses 16 through 30. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show them, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, who sent me, he has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. If you have little ones, first grade and under, who'd like to go for children's worship or nursery, now would be a good time uh, to walk them across the way. Run them across the way, you know, whichever. That's fine, too. So today we're continuing John chapter 5, which includes one of the most pronounced teachings in the Bible on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And it's texts like this one uh, from which emerge the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And as we talked about last week, teaching and preaching on the Trinity can be tricky. Theologically, So we began last week by setting some theological guardrails to help us. And if you weren't here last week, you can listen to the full sermon on our website to get a recap of these interpretive guidelines. I'm not going to spend the same amount of time on it t- today, but I just want to state them sort of in passing uh, in case you weren't here. And if you look in the back where we normally take notes in your worship guide, I have those three guardrails printed off for you. So here are three interpretive guardrails to reign in our reflection today. First is this, rather than giving in to rationalism, let's embrace the mystery of the triune God. So if you want to to, to make rational sense of the Trinity, you want to get a hold of it from a human perspective, you won't. You won't. So rather than forcing numinous notions into carnal categories, let's embrace the mystery of the Trinity and find ourselves swept away in wonder. That was the first guardrail. The second guardrail is this, which is in your worship guide as well. Rather than giving into a rationalistic biblicism, 
let's situate ourselves or find our place in the continuity of the Western creedal tradition. So for thousands of years, spirit-filled Christians have largely agreed on how to understand what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. And we see that in the creeds and confessions. So let's not be so prideful about our own 21st century intellect to think that we need to deviate from that norm that's been established by spirit-filled Christians through the years. And here's the, the third and final guardrail in your worship guide, which is rather than giving in to a skeptical view of New Testament doctrines, let us grasp more fully the idea of progressive revelation. So the New Testament was given through Jesus and the apostles to fill in the blanks of the Old Testament. So we shouldn't fret when the New Testament is, something, is suddenly more explicit with a doctrine that was more unclear or wholly absent in the Old Testament. And the Trinity would be one of those uh, doctrines. So with those guardrails in place, last week we answered, frankly, an easier question than we have today, which was, how are God the Father and God the Son the same? How are they similar? But this week, we want to ask a second question. How are they different or distinct? How are they different or distinct? Why? What, what, what is the point of all this? Here's the big idea for last Sunday and this Sunday, and it happens to be the first blank in your worship guide if you want to take notes. Here's the big idea. Reflection on the Trinity invites our wonder and worship. Reflection on the Trinity invites our wonder and worship. That's the goal to try to peer into something that we can't fully comprehend and to find it beautiful, majestic, mysterious, and then to worship. And if we walk away with anything but that, we've probably done it wrong. So the goal today is not to walk away fully understanding the Trinity or to feel like you've learned some new insight. No, instead, we want to reflect on the nature of God in a way that we are struck by wonder that leads to worship. So let's reflect then on how God the Father and God the Son are different or distinct and therein feel ourselves drawn toward him, the one true God, in wonder and worship. So how are they different? Here's your next blank in your worship guide. God the Father and God the Son, though united in their work and aims, they perform different actions. Though they are united in their work, united in their aims, they perform different actions. So last week we saw that the Father and the Son have always worked together. Jesus says it here in our text. They did so during creation. They did so when the Son was incarnate and living in a human body on the earth. The Father and the Son are still working together in Jesus' resurrected state. And when Jesus returns one day, they will continue to work together. But just because the Father and the Son are working in unison toward shared ends and shared goals, their actions... The actions that the Father and the Son do are often different. Here's your next blank. Perhaps speculatively, we can distinguish between the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in creation. The hymn we just sang was suggesting that, and I would like to suggest it as well. So that they worked uh, together in uh, creation, but that they did different actions. And so I personally believe that when you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you see the first biblical glimpse of the Trinity. So Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What happens next? Then God speaks. And what begins to happen? The world comes into existence as he speaks. In those first few verses, I think we're seeing God the Father and God the Holy Spirit working together. The first and third persons of the Trinity working together but doing different jobs, different tasks. Then, in Genesis chapter 2, we see the forming of Adam. And the scripture says this. Look in your worship guide. Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. I believe that in Genesis 2, we are seeing the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the one who would eventually be called Jesus, kneeling down into the dust, forming man from the dust, and breathing into his nostrils. When I read the Old Testament, any time I see an anthropomorphic, uh, a man-looking depiction of God, I usually interpret it as a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, of Jesus. And this, I think, is the same picture we're seeing painted in John chapter 1. We keep going back to John chapter 1 where John gives this very powerful theological statement about the Son. He describes him as the Word and how he relates to the Father. Kids and grown-ups who come to Sunday school, we've been memorizing John 1, 1 through 18. So let's, let's rehearse the first four verses of that. Y'all ready? All right. we, a lot of the kids just went across the way. So like J.J. and Isaac, y'all got to pull your weight, guys. Here we go. <laughs> All right, here we go. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word... Through him, good job, good job. So John says in the first four verses of this book that the word that is Jesus participated with the Father in creation, and nothing was made that has been made without his involvement. Let's think about this. So the Father, who has life in himself, speaks, right? He speaks in Genesis 1. Then, in Genesis chapter 2, the Son, called the Word, he enacts the Father's spoken word by creating a man from the dust. You see the picture that John is painting here? The Father speaks The Son accomplishes word and word, word spoken, word enacted. They work together, fulfilling different roles. And all of this sounds very similar to what Jesus is saying in our text. Let's look at it now. Chapter 5, verses 19, 20, and 26. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now I realize I'm reading John 5. Back into Genesis 1 and 2 through the lens of John 1, but it's too uncanny for me to not 
do that. I believe that's what the Holy Spirit through John the Apostle is directing us to do. He's building a case, a theological argument for why we should believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. He tells that at the end of John. That's the whole point. He's building a case so that we would believe that Jesus is Christ and Son of God. So John, I believe, is saying that the Father and the Son had different jobs with the same ends in Genesis 1 and 2. And in the same way... We see them interacting in the same way in John chapter 5. Here in the incarnate life of Jesus, we have God the Father and God the Son, though united in their work and aims, performing different actions, just like they did in the beginning. Here's your next two blanks in your worship guide. So during the Son's earthly incarnate ministry and upon his return, the Father has given the Son specific jobs and roles, The Father has given the Son specific jobs and roles. And yet, this does not make the Son less than the Father in essence or capacity. So the Father has given the Son specific jobs and roles. And yet, this does not make the Son less than the Father in essence or capacity. But how? (laughs) I mean, if in our text... All these different tasks are delegated from the Father to the Son. How does that not make the Son somehow less than the Father, at least in capacity or rank or something? Now, this is sticky. Uh, So remember our first two guardrails, especially against rationalism and non-credal biblicism. If you apply strict rationalism to this text or to this idea, you're either going to break your brain or you're going to say something unorthodox. (laughs) Additionally, we have the creeds to help us on this question. Because if you're not careful, it's going to start sounding like there's two different gods. Where one thinks one thing that the other one hasn't thought of yet, or the one has a capacity that the other one doesn't have yet. And the Bible from Genesis onward does not allow for polytheism. There's only one God. So how do we make sense of this difference of work? I think Genesis 1 and 2 are helpful. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, you you see this kind of seamless interaction between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Whereas in John 5, it seems like there are more seams there. So I think Genesis 1 and 2 is a helpful thing to speak into this question. So I have two possible explanations to uh, this question, to this problem. One explanation is simple and probably wrong. Uh, The other explanation is complicated but probably correct, okay? So here's the simple, novel, probably incorrect answer. And I say it's probably incorrect because it's new, it's novel, I came up with it. This is my meager attempt at trying to make sense of some of the challenges in this text. None of the other commentators say it, so that's why it's probably wrong, but I feel like I'd offer it up. It's possible in this text, here's your next blank, that Jesus is explaining with simple metaphors his eternal relation to the Father in a way that people could understand the basics without getting the depths. That makes sense? He could be explaining his relationship to the Father in a very simple way that, 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 so that people could understand the basics without getting the depths. So as progressive revelation unfolds in the Bible, maybe Jesus is just adding one more piece to the puzzle rather than completing the whole puzzle. Maybe he's just adding a little color, a little nuance in an incomplete picture. 
When you're reading the Bible, especially narrative passages, you have to be careful not to overextend it, not to overapply it, and not to try to draw too much out of it. This is not a systematic theology here. This is a teaching that Jesus gave in one situation with one audience that John has preserved for us. So let's just assume maybe this option is correct, which it probably isn't, okay? That Jesus is using simple metaphors to add one piece to the picture. Last week, I said that every metaphor of the Trinity breaks down at some point. Like, you can't talk about, we, we, I sent you all the videos, St. Patrick's bad analogies, like, the Trinity's not like a three-leaf clover, it's not like a car, it's not like the sun where you have the, the fire and the heat and the light. Any metaphor breaks down. So maybe Jesus is explaining things through human language for that audience in a way that it was understandable to them, but still doesn't grasp the fullness of the relationship between the Father and the Son. That is, I think, a simple solution to the challenges raised by this, uh, this text. Um, but nobody else says that, which means I'm probably wrong. So, here is a complex, traditional, probably correct answer. Many, many, many people, smarter people than me, filled with the Holy Spirit, older and wiser than me, have tried to grapple with this text and its ideas. And the best expression of what Jesus is talking about, you can find in the Nicene, Athanasian, and Chalcedonian creeds. That's why we did the Athanasian creed last week, the Chalcedonian creed this week. Because they describe Jesus in these creeds as being begotten of the Father. What does it mean, in short, that Jesus was begotten of the Father? Well, the idea of Christ's begottenness comes from the Bible. It is a biblical idea that I do believe and we believe, for the record, just to let you know, this is what our church believes and every Orthodox church, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, we all agree that the Son is begotten. Where does this come from in the Bible? It comes from two main sources. First of all is Psalm chapter 2. Look in your worship guide. Uh, I have a selection from, from that psalm. It says, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, in a first reading in the original context, a passage like this would probably be about David or Solomon or some king of Israel. You want to be on Yahweh's side? Bow the knee to his king. Right? That's fair. But in the New Testament, this scripture is then taken and applied to Jesus. So we see Psalm 2 quoted in Hebrews. We see it quoted in Acts where Paul and the author of Hebrews are saying, this is talking about Jesus. Yes, it was about David and Solomon back then, but it is even more so about Jesus, the one begotten of the Father to whom all must kneel or else they will receive the wrath of the Father. So that's the first trajectory where you get this idea of the begottenness of the Son because it says that he is begotten here. Um, but there, the other place... Where we find this idea of the begottenness of the Son is, surprise, surprise, in John the Apostle. In the Gospel of John and in his letters, over and over and over again, he talks about the begottenness of 
the Son. And again, remember, he's building this theological case about who Jesus is so that we would believe that he's the Christ and the Son of God. So it's not surprising that John brings it up. Look in your worship guide. I have the four passages where John uses this language in reference to Jesus. And you'll notice I've quoted from the New American Standard Version instead of the ESV. The ESV does not translate it only begotten. There are reasons for that that I think are poor. Uh, so this is a, a more literal rendition of uh, these verses. Uh, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 in chapter 1. Again, this very loaded statement about Jesus. No one has ever seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. That's a really important uh, statement of his begottenness. Uh, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then from 1 John 4, 9, his letter... By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So once again, in this text, we see John the Apostle latching onto an Old Testament idea known to other New Testament authors. But John is employing this notion more fully, expanding it on it a bit. And here's what emerges from all these texts. Here's your next two blanks in your worship guide. The eternal begottenness of the Son means, first, that the Son has always existed. That's what it means first. The Son has always existed. And that the Son is like the Father in essence and characteristics. So the Son has always existed, and the Son is like the Father in essence and characteristics. So the second person of the Trinity was not sparked into existence in one moment in time. No, he has always existed. He's God, right? Period. He's not a creature. And his eternal existence has always been as one begotten of the Father. That is, he's like the Father. You ever wondered what God the Father is like? Look at Jesus. Look at the Son. As the Father has life in himself, so the Son has life in himself. The relationship between these two persons of the Trinity has always existed in this way. So if you want to know what the Father is like, you look at the Son. You know what you can't say? Look at the Spirit, and you'll know what the Father is like. While the Spirit and the Father share the same essence and characteristics, the Spirit is not begotten. His eternal relationship to the Father is different from that of the Son. But let's elaborate more on the Son's eternal begottenness. The eternal begottenness of the Son also means, here's your next blank, that the Son has always related to the Father as the enacted Word. The Son has always related to the Father as the enacted Word. This is the interplay that we see in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the Father speaks humanity into being, And in Genesis 2, the Son is making humanity from the dust. I believe that that was one act of the triune God. As the Father speaks it, the Son makes it happen. Word, word. The second person of the Trinity has always existed as the enacted word of the Father. And so it's not that that God the Father is like the boss. He's in charge of the Son 
and the Spirit, and everybody follows his orders as though there were three different wills in the Godhead. Uh, And I'm not convinced either that there's an eternal subordination of the Son to the Father and the Spirit to the Father and Son. Again, that would presuppose some sort of division within the mind and will of God. Instead, I think that we should see every action of the Son as an expression of the will and action of the Father. Though they are different in expression, they're united in purpose, goals, and essence. Here's a fourth notion embedded in the eternal begottenness of the Son. The three nerds in the room are having a great time right now. We're we're really enjoying ourselves. Your next blank. We believe that the eternal begottenness of the Son means that there is fatherly and filial love shared between the Father and the Son. Filial love is the love of Son to Father. So there is fatherly and filial love shared between the Father and the Son. So the Father, how does the first person of the Trinity love the second person of the Trinity? Like a good father loves his son. And the son loves the father as a good son loves a good father. Are they actually father and son? No. No. But it's like that. So it's appropriate to call them the father and the son. Their love is similar. So in the end, I do believe this is probably the best way to understand the differences that Jesus describes here. Can you grasp it? Yeah. <laughs> And the more we try to force this into our rubrics and reason, the more risky it gets heresy-wise. And here we are, already nearing the end of our sermon, and you're probably asking two questions. First, what in the world is he talking about? And second, what does this have to do with me? Listen, contemplating the nature and character of God is the reason you exist. I said it earlier. We were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So contemplating the nature of God is actually an essential part of living. You might not find this conversation relevant or important, but it's deeply important for you and for everybody you love. It's important for us to consider and contemplate who this God is that we serve. Who this God is that we profess to worship. And more than that, when we reflect on the Trinity, the goal, it's inviting wonder and worship. So how do these esoteric, arcane ideas lead us in a direction of wonder and worship? Well, listen, maybe, maybe these ideas are meant to make us feel small. Maybe these ideas are supposed to remind us that we are creatures And that our capacity to know and understand God, it's going to be limited. Maybe we're supposed to read this stuff and stymied by our unknowing, simply gape in awe of who God is. Maybe we're supposed to struggle with this until we finally submit our intellect, our will, and our imagination to the bigness and beauty of who God is. Brothers and sisters, wonder at who our God is, and let it move you to worship. And now at the risk of overcomplicating this more, let's see a final way that the Father and the Son are distinct or different in our text. Here's your next blank. God the Son, though eternally sharing the same inherent and essential glory with the Father, shrouded that glory with the flesh of humanity. God the Son, though he shares essential inherent glory with the Father, shrouded or hid his glory 
with the flesh of humanity. And this difference, I think, is going to be much more digestible than the prior one. But let's, let's break it down quickly. Here's your next one. In human flesh, the Son was still glorious God and was still worthy of worship. So even though Jesus was, had human flesh and you couldn't see his glory in the same way, he was still glorious God and was worthy of worship. And Jesus points it out in verses 22 and 23. Join me again as I read. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus makes this amazing claim. We talked about it last week that you can't honor God the Father if you don't honor the Son. But the Son doesn't look as glorious as the Father. Think about this. He, what did he look like? He looked like a dude, right? Because he was both God and human. So Jesus, when he was a teenager, he probably had pimples and his voice cracked and he may not have been the most uh, attractive guy. When he was a baby, he cried and he had to be potty trained. His glory was veiled. But he was still worthy of worship. He had lost none of his glory. No, something of his essential glory was shrouded when he was made incarnate in human flesh. But in other Gospels, we see recorded the story of the transfiguration, wherein Jesus' glory was made visible, where the shroud was lifted for a moment. Look in your worship guide. That's from Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So there was a difference between the Father and the Son in how their glory was expressed during the incarnation. But as we see in Matthew 17, they still shared the same glory. I've scratched my head at why the transfiguration is not recorded in the Gospel of John, especially when John was there. And I kind of wonder if maybe this text and others like it are not his version of the transfiguration. We don't see the transfiguration event communicated, but he tells us here in this text that his glory is the same as the Father. So there's a difference there, but that difference or distinction, that shrouding of the glory of the Son became even greater in the cross of Christ. Here's your next blank. Even more, his essential glory was shrouded when the Son took on our sins and submitted to the Father's wrath in our place. When he took on our sins and, and, and endured the wrath of the Father, his glory was even more hidden. So yeah, it was hard to see the glory of the Son in the manger and in his teenage years or later, but his glory was even more shrouded when he was subjected to crucifixion. When he was nailed to a cross naked for all to see, enduring our shame and guilt. Listen to how Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2. It's printed in your worship guide. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, an even more shameful death. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So by taking on flesh, the Son had to empty himself, but even more so when he died on the cross. And the irony of this all is that it's through the shrouding of his glory, through his incarnation and abasement, it's through that process that he truly showed his glory. It was through darkness and death that the light was best seen. And that leads to a final observation, your last blank. This inherent glory of the Son is most fully revealed in the Son's resurrection, ascension, and return to judge. Where will the Son's glory be most fully revealed? It happened in his resurrection, ascension, and return to judge. And I think it's fair to say that these three activities of the Son, he was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and one day will come to judge all humans, that puts some distance between him and us. (laughs) Resurrection is not in our makeup. Ascension into heaven is uh, not within our grasp. And he, of all humans, is the one named judge as the Son of Man. And on that day when he returns, his glory will be more clear than he was when he first came to earth. Let's look last now at verses 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. So that was happening during Jesus' ministry. As he spoke, people were given new life. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming, one day, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Imagine what the glory of the Son will be like on that day. When he comes and every human being is raised from the dead and we stand before our Lord and Maker and are judged, it boggles the mind to consider his glory on that day. Reflection on the Trinity invites wonder that leads to worship. So how does this idea of the Son's glory shrouded in his incarnation and one day revealed again to us, how does that stir you to worship? What love must the Son of God had for him to empty himself in this way, even to the point of death on a cross? What love the Father must have for you to give his Son over to death? You see the beauty of it all. And more importantly, have you given your life to him? Have you given your whole existence over to wonder at this God? Desire to glorify him and to enjoy him forever, to worship him. That's why we're alive. When we say that we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, what we're really saying is we give ourselves over to wonder at you, to love you, God, to delight in you in every way because you, God, first loved us. Don't give in to rationalism, non-credal biblicism, or skepticism. Instead, reflect on this wondrous mystery and worship. Give yourself over to worshiping the triune God.